Hi friends, it's Jer here. I couldn't be more excited to share with you this latest conversation in our virtual immersion into the Israel-Gaza war. This particular conversation came as a part of a collaboration with Feast World Kitchen, a nonprofit restaurant in Spokane, Washington, and the Parents Circle, a nonprofit made up of Israeli and Palestinian parents whose loved ones have been killed in the violence. This week, Feast hosted a meal made by Palestinian and Jewish chefs to benefit Parents Circle, and then we got to host this conversation as a part of that broader experience. The two peacemakers in this virtual immersion are incredible women, heroes of mine, formidable peacemakers who are on the journey from revenge to reconciliation. I want to invite you to sit with this conversation, make some space for it, and share it broadly. It's so essential that it's heard far and wide. Here's the conversation. So for 12 years, Global Immersion has been deeply immersed in this particular conflict. Every time we're there, we meet with the parent circle. And so it's a great privilege to actually bring some of that experience here to you this morning. I want to just bring us up to speed on the story as it's unfolded in terms of how we even got here. This particular story began three weeks ago after the horror began to unfold in Israel and Palestine. I was actually on the ground when this all began. And so when I came home, I immediately sat down with my friends at Feast World Kitchen here in Spokane, which is one of the coolest stories happening in this city, as many of you know, and learned of a desire for there to be a shared project between Jewish and Palestinian chefs to bring a menu to life to feed the community in benefit toward an organization in Israel and Palestine that is doing the collaborative work of reconciliation, Israelis and Palestinians working together from within this horror to actually remake the world, be a part of healing. Later that day, I got to sit at a table with those Jewish and Palestinian chefs, sisters, as they shared their grief, their compassion, and their belief in the power of the shared table to transform all of us. By the end of that conversation, a menu was formed. Feast said, let's host this for the entire community. And then they made an agreement that we actually do want this to benefit an organization called Parent Circle. When they said that, I, my heart lit up because Parent Circle is a kindred organization, a partner organization of Global Immersion. And these people are friends of mine. So I immediately reached out to Robbie and said, hey, here's what's going on. In addition to the event, could we host a live conversation where we could learn from you? where we as the Spokane community can become acquainted with the work of Parent Circle and that we can build the fabric of relationship between us to actually join together remaking the world. And of course, she said, absolutely. Yesterday was the event and I just received an email like many of you that it was a record setting day at Feast. And so thank you for coming out and joining in this beautiful partnership between Feast Global Immersion and the Parent Circle. It's a beautiful story that's unfolding here. It's a hopeful alternative to the divides and the violence that want to capture all of us. It's a story of restoration, of reconciliation, the power of the shared table to actually remake the world. I just learned last night that a check for $10,000 is going to be able to be cut to the Parent Circle to continue to fuel forward their work in the region in this time. And friends, I cannot overstate how critical this is in this moment. So we get to hold up the arms of our friends at the Parent Circle while they're invested in the work of healing in the region. And so that kind of brings us up to this moment. It's such a gift to be able to sit here. And I don't know if, if many of you saw this. I imagine most of you did. The New York Times 
Nick Kristoff put out an article on the parent circle that we, we heard recently, and maybe you can help us understand, Robbie, that there's some interviews happening on NPR and others where the work that we're going to hear about today is being featured all over the country. And so it's a real gift to be able to have such an intimate and personal experience here this morning. So without any further ado, Robbie, Layla, welcome to this conversation. Thank you for joining us. And Robbie, I want to pass it over to you to introduce yourself and the work of Parent Circle and Layla, you as well, and then, and then to hear a bit of your story. So firstly, Jill, I, you know, we don't take for granted that somebody in Spokane that I never heard of in my life hears enough about what's happening here to arrange such an extraordinary meal. I, I also am a great believer in food as a creator of some kind of joy, actually, between people. I know that we made a huge cookery book called Jam Session, where Palestinian and Israeli members of our organization made jams and pickles together, but it was really about learning about the history of each other. And this is a great way to get people together. So thank you for that, and thank you to all the people that came to eat the food. I hope it was good, you know, <laughs> with all that, yes. So this is probably the most difficult time that Israel and Palestine have gone through. I am so sad. So many people are dying and have died. For what? So I look at my friend Vivian Silva. There's not an interview that I give that I don't mention her name because she's a peacemaker. She's been in the field for 20 years. She started Women Wage Peace. She's also traveled every day or once a week with children from Gaza to hospitals in Israel and back. And she's one of the hostages. And they must bring the hostages back. They must. They are babies. They are old people. They are of 85. They are people in wheelchairs. They have to come back and they have to stop the killing in Gaza. And we have to look at why this all happens. You know, it's so easy to judge and to become anti-Semitic or to become Islamophobia and all of these lovely taking sides and importing of our conflict into your country. It terrifies me to see what's happening on campuses and that our conflict is being imported into your country. How sad is that? Instead of if you can't be a part of the solution, and thank you for being a part of the solution, leave us alone because you don't help not me and not Lila. So my story is, you know, I've told it so many times and I'm so privileged in many ways and grateful that I could commemorate my child in a way that thousands and thousands and thousands of people know about David. He was a student at Tel Aviv University studying for his master's in the philosophy of education. And he was a part of the peace movement and the head of the student uprising. Can't imagine where he got that from. And he went to serve in the occupied territories, which he didn't want. And he was killed by a Palestinian sniper. But let me say that one Palestinian killed my child, not the whole Palestinian nation. And the first thing I said was, you can't kill anybody in the name of my child. And so that's where it all began. And that's where I realized that if Palestinians and Israelis could get together and talk in the same voice for peace 
and for nonviolence and for reconciliation, then wouldn't that be an example? I mean, if we, the bereaved, Lila and I, can actually stand up and talk in the same voice on the stage to end this madness, then wouldn't that be an example for everybody else? I started to travel all over the world because I spoke English. Everybody thought I was intelligent, which I thought was very funny because I was born in South Africa. And then one night when I came home, there was a knock on my door and there were three soldiers standing outside and they came to tell me that they caught the man who killed David. And that's the test. You see, all along the road, there are tests to see if you actually mean what you say. I didn't sleep for three months after that. But then I wrote a letter to the family of the sniper in which I told them about the parent circle. We were 700 families, no, 700 families, and soon there will be a lot more who have all aligned to this message to create a framework for a reconciliation process to be an integral part of any political future peace agreement. Because we've signed all kinds of stuff on the White House lawn to no avail. And so in the letter, I also told the family that we needed to meet, that we owed it to our children and grandchildren. And it took three years and I got an answer back where Thaya, that's the name of the man who came, David, said, I'm crazy. I already knew that and that I should stay away from his family um, because he killed 10 people to free Palestine. But you see, I understood something else. And here's the value of restorative justice. I understood from his parents that when he was a little boy, he saw his uncle violently killed by the Israeli army. And afterwards, he lost two uncles in the second uprising. And so this was probably a part of revenge. But what happened to me with that letter was actually an act of freedom. I gave up being a victim. I think I'm not even a survivor. I think today I'm a victor. So I went to South Africa and we made a film and I'm not going to tell you the whole story because we want lots of time for questions. But I think it is such a privilege to be a part of transformation of other people's lives. That is such a gift to see somebody who's being filled with hatred and anger being able to turn and to understand the value of nonviolence. Thank you. Now that's your turn. Yeah. First of all, I want to thank you for inviting us to share with you our experience and to spoke about our situation now. My name is Laila Sheikh. I'm from a village called Bethir. It's between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. I was born and raised in Jordan because my family originally from Bethlehem, but they went to Jordan because my father was a teacher. And after that, the war was started in 1967. And after that, the Israeli government closed the border. So because of that, they lost their citizenship as Palestinian. So my father has thousands of stories about Palestine. So I love Palestine from what I heard from my father. In 1999, I came back because I met my husband in Jordan and we came here to get married and to start our life. But after two years, after we had two children, boy and girl, the second uprising started. And during that time, the situation became much, much more difficult for me. That was the first time I live in a situation like that. I was really so terrified. And especially when the Israeli government 
take a decision not to give people like me who came from Arab countries, they prevented us from having our Palestinian ID. So that meant I can't go freely from place to place. Most of the time we should stay at home. But I don't care too much because I have my family to take care of. But one day, 11th of April, 2002, four o'clock in the morning, my son at that time, he was six months old. His name was Osai. He woke up in very critical condition because at that night, the Israeli soldiers came to our village and they threw to you gas. And because he was too young and the treatment in our village wasn't good enough. So we tried to take him to a hospital in Bethlehem. They prevented us and they said it's military zone. And again, we tried to take him to Hebron, the next city to Bethlehem. But again, the Israeli soldiers prevented us for more than four hours. And after that, when we reached the hospital, the doctor said it's too late to save his life. And if he will stay alive, he will be handicapped. So the, the two choices was really so hard to think about. At the end of that day, he died. From that moment, our life was changed forever. I was filled with hatred, anger. But the most is for the Israeli. For me, I was thinking all of them were responsible about his death. Because I always ask myself, why did this happen? Like, my son just six months old. Why they did that to him? And I answered myself and said that was his crime is a Palestinian. So uh, the time passed and you try to live with your bereavement. But it's still in some way inside of you. So after 16 years, one of my friends uh, called me and he started to talk about the parents' circle and I stopped him and I said, are you crazy? You know what happened to me? And he said, I want to ask you a question. Why until now you didn't tell your children who came after him about what happened to him? I said, because I didn't want to lose them. I lost one of them and that was much more than enough for me. I can't lose another one. Because maybe if they know, they start to think to take revenge. And from the moment that he died, I take a decision not to... Um, to have revenge, because revenge for me will never bring him back. And then he said, but maybe this will be a good chance for you to, not just to save your children, maybe other families. After many calls from him, he invited me one day to a conference in Bethlehem for the Baron Circle. And it was the first time I heard aggrieved families from the Israeli side who spoke about how they lost their family members, and I was really amazed and shocked because that was the first time I looked to them as a human like me. The first time I felt we share the same pain, we share the same fears, even if we had different circumstances, but we're still human. And no one could understand that pain unless someone lived in the same situation. So from that day, I decided to participate in one of our projects called Barrel Narrative Project. And this is the main project in our organization, which gives chance for both sides to say, to talk about everything. And maybe we are the only organization which give this space for both sides to sit face to face to talk about. Because as a Palestinian, we just met settlers or soldiers, but we, we didn't have a chance to meet the normal people like us. And even the Israeli, they didn't have a chance to meet 
normal people. They just met workers, and most of the time they didn't even have a chance to talk to them. So during this project, we, we met for eight times. We have two professors from both sides who spoke about the history of the two nations. We even went to visit Yad Vashem Museum to learn much more about the Holocaust. We even went to visit a Palestinian village was existed before 1948. It's not to comparing the pain. It's not about tell who first, who second, who's right, who's wrong. It's about learning about each other, understand uh, the situation from uh, like everyone. Because as Palestinian and Israel, we didn't have just that wall of cement. We have walls of unknowing each other, of hatred, anger. So the first activity, they asked us to spoke about something happened during the conflict, and that was the first time. I spoke about what happened to my son, even between me and my husband. We didn't spoke after his death. So that was so hard for me to speak about him. It's like to open the wound again, bring the memories back, the pain. And I couldn't complete it, and I started to cry. And then an Israeli woman came, and she started to apologize. And she said, yes, I'm a mother too. I could understand your pain. I could understand even the words that you couldn't say, and yeah, I didn't hurt you on the people who hurt you from my own people. And she came and hugged me. Both of us started to cry. She didn't know that day by her simple word how much she changed my life. She returned me back to my life, to my even beliefs. As a Muslim mother, I believe in Quran, I believe in scriptures, and there is a script said, you can't judge all the people because of mistake of one person. I know it, I believe in it, but I didn't work with it because I felt of hatred and anger. So after that, I decided even to be a member of the forum, start to give lectures at Israel, Palestine, travel around the world to spread the message of peace and reconciliation. And that was so easy to spoke about these lovely words and you think you do your best and everything become right. And... But you, a few months ago, Life gave me a new test. We've been in a meeting in Jerusalem, me and Robbie and other organization. And after we spoke about our stories, there are men who stand up. His name is Hin Alon. He's from an organization called Compatent of Peace. And he started to talk about his story. I know him like three years ago, but that was the first time I listened to his story. And then he mentioned that he served in my area because he was a high officer. And then he mentioned that he prevented a Palestinian car which have sick children from going to a hospital. Then that was the real test. I couldn't breathe. I even couldn't cry in the beginning. For me, like to be in front of one of those soldiers was like a dream because in my whole life, I didn't think that I will meet one of them. And him alone to be one of them, that was like a big shock for me. So uh, Robbie asked both of us to go outside the room to speak about that. And then he mentioned after time, his son becomes sick. And when he tried to take him to a hospital, the guard stopped him because he wanted to ask him a few questions. And he was in a hurry, but he stopped him. And then he said, just then I realized what I did to the Palestinian. He quit from the army and he was jailed because of that. And he established this organization, Compact for Peace with other ex-Palestinian fighters. 
And they start to work on the ground to change the, the occupation, the conflict. Then I look at him and I say, look, this is so hard for me to listen to you and to your story. But at the same time, I want to thank you. I want to thank you because if I know that part of your story is exist and you didn't tell me, I will never forgive you. But I could forgive you because you've been so honest and you have that courage to speak in front of me. And I know how much that's difficult for you and difficult for me. But for me, this is the real reconciliation. It's easy to speak about things, but when it happened, it gave you like a chance to think, did you really meant every word you say? Did you really meant everything you did? So after that, that gave me like a new push, a new power to continue. And when you really find that you meant everything you say, this is the real test. And during this or last month, uh, I woke up on the 7th of October hearing the sirens and one of the explosions happened in, in our village. And at that moment, I didn't realize what's going on because I just woke up. And I look from the window, I didn't see anything. And then another explosion happened. Then I look from outside and I saw my mother-in-law. I asked her what's going on. And she said, the war has started and Hamas inside Israel said, what? It took me like maybe one hour to understand what's going on. Our children were terrified. We didn't have shelter to, to hide in. There's like 10 rockets explosion in my village and some of them between the houses but thank god like no one hurt my children were terrified my youngest daughter she's eight years old until today she can go to their bathroom by herself she can't sleep alone she won't be beside me all the time and when she heard any noise she started to ask what's going on what's happened and she had many Many questions about the people in Gaza and what's going on and what will happen next. And it's so hard to listen to all this news and to see all these videos and, and photos for both sides. We believe that every soul is so precious. We believe that no one should be hurt or killed or kidnapped from both sides. We all deserve to live a normal life. We all deserve to be in safe. We all deserve to live as God wants from us to live. God created us to live and to love each other and not to kill each other without their mercy. And even during these hard times, we couldn't stop our working. We work much harder than the other days because in this world, it's, it's really one of the hardest right? We We can't stop. We should still always have hope. We can't lose hope. Thank you so much. Thank you, Leila and Robbie, and gifts of the stories that you just shared with us, we carry now close. And my hope is that it continues to transform us into the kinds of people who, as you say, Robbie, are victors in champions for reconciliation over revenge. And so, and I'm so sorry that what links you is pain and so inspired that what now continues to drive your relationship is trust and relationship and a dream and a vision for a world that you just spoke of, Layla, a world where this kind of violence plagues us no more. And 
So thank you for that. Thank you for your courageous choices. I, I'm wondering, and friends who are listening in, I, I see some questions beginning to emerge in the in the Q and A box. Please let's populate that, and and I can just facilitate your questions here to to Robbie and, and Layla. As you're writing those questions in, I, I want to ask Robbie and Layla, can you can you give us a little bit more of a picture of what the work has looked like? The, the work of Parent Circle, there, as I understand, there's healing that happens within, there's communication that happens like this, but there's all sorts of ways that that you have found to transcend the walls and the barriers of structural violence that want to actually distance you from one another. You are a remarkably creative organization in dismantling or transcending these barriers. And I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit. Give us a, a robust picture of, of the work and then give us a little bit more of a picture of how that work is evolving, or as you say, Layla, even intensifying right now in light of what's happening on the ground. Well, I don't really know where to start. When this all happened and, and you know, suddenly rockets outside my house and noise and thinking about the trauma from both sides, I think that this whole nation of Palestinians and Israelis is totally traumatized. Everything that makes a noise, I jump, you know, and I have a safe room. But what if I lived in Gaza? What if I had my children and I was running away and I didn't have a shelter? And what if that child who grew up in Gaza, every two years there's a war, right? And there are bombs and there's noise and I don't have freedom of movement and I don't have much hope either. What kind of adult am I going to grow up to be? And then I look at the children who live on the border of Gaza, in the Kibbutzim, in Sterot, Ashkelon, uh, and Ajdod, all of these places which are in immediate danger all the time from rockets. How do these kids grow up? They're still wetting their beds at the age of 12. So here's the trauma, and what kind of adults are they going to be? And so our work is so cut out for us. But firstly, we have to work on ourselves because all of these things can kind of challenge your belief system. You know, I, I just watched today, we had a staff meeting. We have two offices, one in Bejana, one in Tel Aviv. We have two of everything. It's like Noah's Ark, two directors, two educators, two of everything. And I was listening to the meeting and I suddenly realized how painful because we have a member who comes from Janine, which is in the West Bank. And don't think that terrible things are not happening in the West Bank at the moment too. And the rockets that the Hamas shot at, 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 at Lina's house, all of this is causing terrible trauma. And the man who came from Janine was telling us he's a nurse. He's a member of the parent circle. And why did he become a nurse? Because his brother was killed and he couldn't help him. And so he told us the whole story of what's happening in Janine and how his nephew got shot and how terrifying it is and how they don't have enough hospitals to handle all the cases that are going on there. So it's not only Gaza, it's everywhere. And, and I look at the streets of Tel Aviv and I think to myself, the one wonderful thing that happened is like there was a war in 2021 and there were terrible riots outside my house. I live in Jaffa. But this is for this war, there has been an agreement between Palestinian Israeli citizens and Israelis that there would be no violence. 
and they are working together on that, and that is amazing. There are also incredible stories that have come out of this war with extraordinary people. You know, there's a man called Maoz Inon, and I'm in touch with him because I think that that the only people who really can understand other bereaved people are bereaved people because there's this contact where it's okay to say what the hell you like and to do what you like and to know that the person there will love you and, and support you. And they have the same color tears. And so I went to visit Maoz because his parents were burnt to death in, in their kibbutz where they lived. They in, were in their 70s. And he is speaking out now for quiet, for ceasefire, to return the hostages to stop the killing. It's only not even a month. Almost on the second day after his parents were killed, he was already talking in that vein. And there are many, many or more because a lot of the people that lived in that area come from families that were much more leftist. And so, you know, what a sad thing to think that the parents circle now will have so many new members who are willing to come out with a message of peace. That's an extraordinary thing that's coming out of all of this. There are the Bedouin villages where Bedouin came and, and tried to save all these kids that were killed in that terrible music festival. And some of them were killed, and there are Bedouin hostages. And they come from an, un an unrecognized village. That's extraordinary. There's a huge warehouse in one of the towns near to the south, a Bedouin town where Israelis and Palestinians and Bedouins are together up in this warehouse with food and goods to deliver to people in need. So there are these little miracles happening everywhere. And when we have the staff meeting today, and when this man told us this terrible experience about Jimmy and somebody else about what was happening in his village from the staff, I recognize how wonderful it is that we have the capacity to still meet and that we can actually listen to each other with empathy. And it was really hard to listen to this today. So it's not all terrible, but what it is is don't be on anybody's side because you are not helping us. Be on the side of the solution, not the problem. I didn't mean to give you a lecture. Sorry, you can ask more questions. I was just going to say, no, we need, we need a lecture right now, <laughs> especially from folks like you who are living this message. This is not the stuff of idealism and theory. This is, this is embedded and embodied, and it's very, very costly for you to live this, this, this kind of way. I, I wonder, and, and one more question that we'll turn to, to some Q&A that's coming in from our audience. What is the cost of this? for you two as individuals and within the larger society? Is, is this popular? Is it gaining momentum? Is there cost associated to prioritizing reconciliation over revenge? Wait, well, the cost of this war is dreadful because there is so much anger and hatred and want for revenge and retribution. So it's going to take time. You know, people need patience. It doesn't going to happen overnight. But there will be extraordinary people that will come out of this. And maybe, just maybe, we can start to talk now at the end of this horrific, horrific war. But don't imagine that this can happen overnight when there is so much anger and so much pain from both sides. It's not going to happen overnight. 
But we as a group of the parent circle are absolutely sure that we have to make time to speak to all the families that we can possibly get to. And don't think that the people who live on the West Bank have also lost a lot of relatives in Gaza. They too, and people in Gaza, you hear of whole families being killed because they also live in one apartment building. So there might be like generations living in one building. So a whole family gets wiped out. That is so appalling. You know, I can't, it breaks my heart. It also breaks my heart that I look at the people in, in Tel Aviv and Jaffa and it's dead. There's like nobody walking around in the streets. But I don't live in Gaza and I don't live in the South. And and who knows what's happening now in the north of Israel, whether there's going to be a continuation of the war. All these things are so uncertain. The only certainty is that we continue with this work because in my heart and my soul, I know that this is the only way. Leila, how about you? In what, what has been the cost of this work for you as a reconciler? And, and then can you also give us a picture of what is happening in the West Bank? So much of the coverage is focusing on the atrocities that are happening in the Gaza, but we do understand that violence is intensifying in the West Bank. And so, yeah, can you interact with those two questions? Uh, first of all, as Robbie said, this war will bring much more hatred and anger from both sides. And that's what we try to work for many, many years to, to change this. But this war is one of the hardest one because this war now, they, sometimes it's hard to speak about this because when I remember some pictures, like especially children when they lost their beloved uh, parents or family member and how they cry and some of them tried to wake his mother and she they didn't know that she's died or uh, there's a girl who said, I know she's my mom. And they asked her, how do you know her? And she said, I recognize her from her hair. And this is so hard to listen to those children and to understand what, when they grow up, how could they feel if they still had that hatred and anger and what will happen next? And the explosion, the, the schools, the refugees camp, the hospitals. And this is so hard to explain to some people sometimes why this happened and to justify it's not justified it's kind of even explain this it's really so hard for us especially these days to to talk about this sometimes as Robbie said we have two members from our organization one of them he lost 17 family member from his mother's side and yesterday his cousin died from his father's side and one of our members, she lost her sister with the entire family, like the husband, the children, the grandchildren. But they didn't live most of the time, all of them in the same like building. Sometimes, especially in this world, all the families gathered, even if they live far away, because they said, if we've been killed, we will be together. We didn't want someone to live by like alone and leave the other. And about the West Bank, the situation is, it's not better. Like, since the war started, uh, all the West Bank enclosure, um, most of... Now, explain to them what a closure means. 
please. Closure means really. Yeah, closure means first of all, you can't enter Israel. The workers from like who work in buildings and all these things, some of other kind of work, they couldn't go to their work, so they lost even their jobs. And even sometimes they close between the village and the city that belonged to this city. So most of people can't sometimes go to have food or have uh, supplies or even to go to a doctor. And the other pro- problem is the government now gives the settlers weapons. But sometimes they didn't like defense themselves. Most of the time they attack the people in their houses. They burn their houses. They burn the their cars or even attack them in the street. So the situation in the West Bank is so terrible too. But because all the media now go to Gaza, no one understand what's going on in the West Bank. I have a son, he's my oldest son, he's 20 years old. He works in Bethlehem. And a few days ago, he told me that he will go to Ramallah. It's another city far away from Bethlehem. And I begged him not to go there because I don't know what will happen to him. And he said, I can't refuse because I should go there. I called him every 10 minutes and I asked him to be safe. If the soldiers stop you, show them your ID, don't argue with them. Because you can't understand what will happen. Everyone is angry. Everyone, they, they even when they stop anyone, they search his phone. If he had pictures for Gaza or anyone who killed during this war or even if he on the side of Hamas or even if he is not the side of Hamas, but he agree about what happened. So the situation is so complicated here. You Have you noticed that countries become like off-Broadway? What's happened? Doesn't anybody talk about the Ukraine anymore? It's extraordinary. It's as if it doesn't exist. Putin must be dancing around his lounge in joy that, that the world is not looking at what is happening. The whole world has gone insane. They had this huge demonstration in London, Palestinian demonstration, on Armistice Day, and the right wing, there's a fascist group, came to attack the Palestinians. Everybody's got to have a say in whatever's happening. It's terrifying how many fascist countries exist now. What is happening on the campuses in America? The anti-Semitism is scary. You know, I I look at my family that live in London. They don't know what to do. I told you, I think, about my cousin who wears the Star of David, but she wears it in her dress. So, okay, you realize where that's coming from. And she's sitting on the train and it comes out of her shirt and the man comes up to her and says, dying bloody true. So, you know, all of this stuff, this importation of our conflict and the Islamophobia and the boy killed somewhere in the States, I don't exactly remember where, a little Palestinian kid and an old Jewish man at a, a, a demonstration. Everybody's got to have a say. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so, and the, other, and the other side would make the Palestinian much more like feel angry when other countries, I don't want to name them, but they involve themselves in this conflict by supplying Israel with weapons and, you know, all this stuff. And 
we believe that instead of that, they should bring two sides to to be stable, to have agreement, to stop this war as soon as possible, to do something to stop killing all those people and to try to clear all this mess. Because if this will continue, no one know what will happen next. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Thank you, Leila. The country that you leave unnamed, I'll go ahead and name as the United States. We've been a part of the dropping of right now more than 25,000 tons of bombs on the Gaza, which is why putting pressure, and by pressure, I mean melting the phone lines in Washington, D.C. is so critical in this moment to end this violence. I want to turn our, our attention here to some of the questions because we need some coaching from you, if you would be so kind. I'm looking first in the comment section. Question is, how specifically can we not take sides here? And, and I think there's an agreement that, that the, the violence or the conflict or the crisis there, we love to import it here. And we see this in the streets of our own cities. So the question is, how specifically can we not take sides here to, to this person calling for a ceasefire is taking sides? Defending Israel's right to defend itself is taking sides. And so how... How do we hold that pro-human space as reconcilers? Maybe it would be nice if people would talk about the peacemakers, if people would only see the humanity in both sides, if people would tell the stories of Lila, of me, of anybody from our group, and try to have a conversation with the person that you most dislike and try to listen with empathy without being angry, because what happens is, like, you know, there are all these interfaith groups, okay, and everybody's very lovey-dovey, and they all eat together, and everything's very hunky-dory until something happens. And then it's either Israel or Palestine, something happening in one country, and everything falls to pieces because nobody has addressed the elephant in the room. And if you can get to the stage where you actually trust each other, where you actually can listen without judgment, even if you don't agree, that's the beginning of the end of all of this. And so maybe you address your own situation of polarization, of pro-Jewish pro or pro-Israel, pro-Palestine, and try to get to the stage where you can work together to stop it. I was just thinking, you know, like on a campus, if all the students would get together and they would not, and they would all demonstrate for peace and not anti-pro this or anti-that. So you, there's a lot of work to be done in the whole world. I travel a lot. And I mean, I always take Charlottesville as an example. I remember watching Charlottesville with all this mad, crazed people and thinking to myself, if they would take just ordinary white people, because let's face it, all of us are somewhat prejudiced, and they went down into that park with a statue together with people who had slavery backgrounds. And they sat around the statue and they said why they think it should be there and why they think it should be pulled down. Then people would begin to understand how people see their history, and that's the beginning of a conversation. And that was what Lila was really talking about in this whole parallel narrative project that we run because we all see our history through our own eyes. I think one of the most extraordinary things that happened to us, to Lila and I, we went on a trip 
to the south. We went to New Orleans and we went to Jackson and we went to, I don't know, Selma and we landed up in Montgomery. And it was quite extraordinary understanding other people's conflicts and how I think if we're talking about Israel as an apartheid state, I think we could look at Selma and Montgomery and maybe come out with the same conclusion. So it's very easy to be so judgmental about everybody else, but maybe it's time to look within and to see how you can. I had thought to myself with COVID, that was an extraordinary opportunity to reach out to people you would normally never talk to who are bereaved and go and just be there for them. Maybe that's a step in ending all the polarization. And in my opinion, if you start to talk about this, don't start to talk about who started this, who's right, who's wrong. Because if we start to talk, we will start to blame each other, and this will never stop. We should start to think, what should we do next? Stop thinking about what happened. Yeah, everyone get hurt. Everyone was terrified. Everyone was angry. Everyone was uh, confused. But now we should start to think what will happen next. What should we do? Because I remember when my son died at that night, I have a dream about white dove came and stand on my shoulder and said to me, Mama, don't cry. I'm so happy. I can't stop crying from that day until today. Every time I look at I remember him or even spoke about him. But at that day, I understand that he, he was happy because he's with God. He's just six months old. But I didn't realize why he came as a white dove. But when I become a member in the forum, I start to understand that that was like kind of message from God. That, as you know, white dove is simple for peace. And it's kind of God chose me to be in this, in this situation or, or in this place. And as he wanted to tell me that he didn't want the death of my son went without achieving something. I know sometimes, and I believe that we go through difficulties, but I believe after that, something good will happen. And I think, and I believe, and I hope that after all this madness, the people from both sides woke up and understand that we should have solution. We can't just stay like that. Every one year or two years, we have another war and we have people killed from both sides and another family member who become bereaved. We can't live our life like that. Our children, our grandchildren, even us, we, we deserve to live a normal life. You know, I, I just saw in the question, somebody asked, why are we not calling out Iran if we call out, or as you Americans call it, Iran? Why are we not calling out Iran because they are funding the Hamas? That is such a typical way of, of arguing that I'm, I'm right and you're wrong. You're absolutely right about Iran. But the fact that you actually feel you have to say that is also part of this whole situation of dialoguing. And, and I thank you for that because it's an opportunity to look and see how we always try to find I'm right, you know, and I do the same thing, okay? So I'm not, I'm not, obviously not saying anything bad. By the but, way, Iran, just I want to make a comment. Sure Iran, that. one of the countries that I, I mentioned, 
because they are not better than the others. Let, let me let me turn uh, with the minutes that we have left to a, a question that I think is is really critical to this, and I think we've heard you both allude to it. It, it, many of us are, are asking the question, what do we do? And that that is a critical question. There is a high level of urgency around doing something to move toward the end of this violence as a next step. And we also have to be asking the question, who must I become? Like fundamentally, this is an opportunity for our global family to ask some serious questions about who we must become in order to end our impulse and the inertia of reaching for power rather than the hands of one another. And so I'm looking at a question by Ross, who's who's the co-director at Feast and a major part of, of, of this call even happening. He asks the question about what, what is the path toward becoming a victor? You you use the word victor. You're not, you're not a survivor, you're a victor. And I, I imagine that Ross is hearing that as like when you're when you move from a place of pain and victim to actually giving your life for the sake of repair. You've moved from victim to victor, but there's a there's a perilous journey from one to the other. And I wonder in the time that we have left, could you two reflect on your own journey from victim to victor? To think as a victim, it's so easy, or even to think to take revenge. This is the easiest way. And this is the first thing anyone tried to think when he been in a situation like that. But I think to to be a peacemaker and to walk in this field, it's kind of you challenge yourself. If you could really have, even when you have that pain and you have that loss, you will to do something better, to try to find solution for this because you didn't want any other family to be suffered like you. I think this is the challenge. This is the power of your beliefs and of humanity. For me, it's about gratitude. That's like a bit of a corny word, but for me, gratitude, you know, I say to people how grateful I am that I've actually been a part of other people's transformation from hatred and from wanting revenge into becoming loving, beautiful people who want to protect their children and who want to go on a path of nonviolence. Do you know what a gift that is to be a part of something like that? I think for me, I never really was looking for revenge. I can't say that. And I was angry with the Israeli army because I didn't think my son should have been there in the first place. But I don't know. It was almost there inside of me. All my life I've been like interested in social justice, anti-apartheid, all of this stuff. But suddenly it became my life. It's like 24 hours a day. If I tell you what I've done today, you actually will not believe it. Or since the beginning of the war. I think I must have done 60 to 70 interviews all over the world, plus dialogue meetings, plus I can't even begin to tell you. And how, isn't that an amazing thing to be grateful, to be able to actually change people's hearts? Spot on. Friends, thank you so much for the gift of your time, of your stories. Thank you too, though, for your witness and the the life the courageous, courageous ways in which you're waging peace in the midst of an unthinkable trauma and horror. Thank you for taking this time to invest in us, to coach us as aspiring peacemakers here. 
Friends who are listening in, either here or in the recording, you will receive a recording to this. We're going to work through several organizations here in Spokane to make sure that this recording and all resources and links are made available to you. I want to encourage you, for those who are listening in, to use this recording and convene folk from within your sphere of influence to view it and to talk about it. I, I think that some really important principles around how it is that we need to show up. We're just uncovered here. And so use this recording as an opportunity to live contagiously and, and to point people in, in the directions of repair. A couple of other next steps that I would urge, number one, as I mentioned, I think continuing to put pressure on our members of Congress is absolutely critical. It's not just a good idea. It's essential. It's, it takes just a couple of minutes. When you call in, you'll chat with a staffer who's a 22, 23-year-old and they're not listening so much to the argument, they're, they're taking notches. And by the end of the day, they're going to communicate to their member of Congress how many people called in and cared about this particular issue. And so this, again, not a good idea. I think this is absolutely critical and a way that we can be reconcilers in this moment. Many of you probably noticed that, that over 100 staffers on Capitol Hill walked out because we are melting the phone lines and our representatives aren't listening they're not going to be able to turn a deaf ear for much longer. And so I want to encourage you to do that. Number two, now is a time to reach to our Jewish and Muslim kin in our own communities and friendship circles. As both Robbie and Layla indicated, both communities are living with a level of terror and fear here in our own community. And this is a moment not to continue to space ourselves and live with any kind of weird suspicion. Now is the time, like what happened yesterday, to reach across divides and differences and grasp for each other's hands, find ways to be around tables with one another to actually deepen our understanding and our solidarity in this moment in time. Third, I want to invite you to invest in the movements that are cultivating peacemakers in this planet. As Robbie alluded to, crises are stacking right now. Nobody's talking about Russia and Ukraine. Nobody's talking about what could happen with China and Taiwan. We just had one of the largest mass shootings in the history of our country about two weeks ago, and we're not talking about it anymore. So crises are stacking. We actually need to get our investment behind organizations that are cultivating peacemakers in this planet, people who are willing to move toward these conflicts and divides with the, with the tools to heal rather than to win. And we'll make some recommendations in a follow-up email. The last thing that I want to offer from a global immersion point of view is that we're doing what we're calling a virtual immersion, where we're doing this very thing. We're actually doing one-on-one -on -one conversations with Israeli and Palestinian peacemakers who are embedded in the trenches of this war. And we're hosting those over on Global Immersion's Instagram channel. If you are on Instagram, follow us so you can see when we go live, recordings will live there. If you're not on Instagram, we also have a YouTube channel where you'll be able to access those conversations there. And we're featuring those recordings on our podcast. That's how important these perspectives are. Now is the time to be listening to folks like Robbie and Layla, letting them be our guides in terms of who we're becoming and how we respond in a pro-human kind of way. And so we'll get all of these resources and links out to you in the in the hours ahead. Friends, thank you for being with us. Robbie, Layla, we're with you. you. We're behind you. Thank you for waging peace in such creative and costly ways. And we're, we're honored to be a part of the story in, in a small way. Friends, thanks for being thank a part of this. Thank you also for the food. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye -bye. Have a good day. The virtual immersion into the Israel-Gaza war continues live on Global Immersion's Instagram channel, at Global Immerse. Follow us there and please share these conversations broadly if you agree that they need to be heard. 
Friends, as the year-end approaches, I want to invite you to consider investing in peace by investing in global immersion. Your contribution allows us to continue to host conversations like this one. We're a nonprofit dependent on donations to continue our work producing inspiring media and training both everyday peacemakers and reconciling leaders to mend divides. Special thanks to our Embers community of monthly donors, investors in peace, who make the virtual immersion and this podcast possible. You can join our Embers community of monthly donors with a recurring gift of any amount. Learn more about the work of Global Immersion and donate at globalimmerse.org.